Hello, and welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. podcast is being recorded on December 3rd, 2021. Dr. David Bankston is an environmental futurist and social scientist with the Strategic Foresight Group of the Northern Research Station USDA Forest Service and is located in St. Paul, Minnesota. He is also an adjunct faculty member at the University of Minnesota, where he teaches a seminar on environmental futures. Dr. Bankston has published more than 160 research publications, including papers in the Journal of Futures Research, World Futures Review, Futures, and The Futurist. He was the chair of the North American Forest Commission's Foresight Working Group and is a member of the World Futures Studies Federation and the Association of Professional Futurists. In the summer of 2022, he will be a visiting Fulbright Scholar at the University of Eastern Finland. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, David. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Thank you. And we need to have you tell us a little bit about how you wound up as a futurist. When I was in high school, my father was a businessman and uh, always looking for innovation and new things that might affect his company and his job. And he was a member of the World Future Society. Oh way back in the early days of the World Future Society. So this was the early 1970s. I was in high school and we had the the Futurist magazine sitting around the house. And every month I would devour that. And I found out there were people who called themselves futurists and they worked for some of them for the government, usually military. They worked for large corporations. Some were academic futurists. And it was a whole world that uh, I was really intrigued by. And so then in in college, I created an individually designed bachelor's degree in future studies with the help of a couple of Minnesota-based futurists with some inspiration and a little help from, from them. So that was how I got into futures way back. And then I got sidetracked along the way by a really outstanding economics professor who got me interested in environmental and natural resource economics, which is what I went into in grad school. Wow. And so there's the love of the love of future and the love of trees. And I think that goes beautifully together because when you plant a tree, you have to think into the future and you have to make that connection between present day and future. And how many fields do you know of that have the kind of time horizon that in forestry and arboriculture, there's very few fields that have that kind of long time horizon as as we do in forestry. And so that was one of the things that attracted me to forestry. When I was in grad school, I had an opportunity to work with a forest economist, Hans Gregerson at the University of Minnesota, which uh, led to a job with the Forest Service eventually. I thought this will be a great place to work for a couple of years and get a little more research experience. And then 38 years later, I'm still there. It's it's really the perfect job for me. I love working in Forest Service research and it's just been such, such a great organization, so many great colleagues. Well, you can tell that you love it because with 160 research publications, that's a lot to have underneath your belt. Well, it's publish or perish in research. And exactly, so. exactly. You know, a couple of years ago, I still do it periodically. I'll Google arboriculture and climate change just to see what Google spits back out. And uh, there actually wasn't a lot. You know, our arborists doing everything to address climate change within the context of their business model. So your paper on scanning the 
horizon for the future of arboriculture caught my eye back then. It talks about volunteer scanners searching a wide range of sources for signals of change in forestry and urban forestry. Would you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah, that was a paper that came out of a talk I gave at an ISA meeting. It was the southern chapter, I believe, of ISA meeting somewhere in the south. I can't remember. And I thought as long as I put that presentation together, I might as well get a publication out of it because it's publisher parish. The, the content of that article were straight out of the horizon scanning system that we have in, in my group, in my futures group in forest service research. Horizon scanning is one of the core methods of futures. You can't really call yourself a futurist if you don't do horizon scanning. Okay. We, uh, we developed this with um, Andy Hines, Professor Andy Hines, who is the director of the Future Studies Program at the University of Houston. He provided a lot of guidance and the help for us when we were setting up our horizon scanning system. We have uh, a really diverse group of volunteer scanners from retirees who work within forestry and wildlife and other fields, some of them from completely unrelated fields. We have some students. We have a guy who's a librarian in Iowa, and he found out about us and wanted to be one of the scanners, which is great. So we have this very diverse group, which is important because you need all those different perspectives. You don't want just someone from within the field because they might not be looking as broadly at, at possible emerging issues and emerging developments that we need to pay attention to for the future. And so they scan a wide range of information sources and then they tag them with descriptive tags and post them in an online database that we have. We analyze that periodically. One of my colleagues, Lynn Westfall, is just finishing up a project where she went through our entire database of 3,000 plus horizon scanning hits, these signals of change in the database, and she's, she was focusing just on those that are relevant for outdoor recreation. And so we, we analyze the database in various ways. Before I went down and did that ISA talk, I looked to our database and pulled out a bunch that related to arboriculture and trees and urban forestry and picked out a few that I thought were both provocative and kind of fun and interesting and could have a significant effect on the shaping the future of the field. So. And can you share a few of those then? Yeah, I mean, uh, let's see here. One of them has to do with the vertical forests which are these tall buildings, skyscrapers, or 20, 30-story buildings. And the first ones were five or six years ago in Milan, Italy, these two towers. They have hundreds of trees, thousands of shrubs and other plants, uh, perennials, growing on the outside of the building on these specially designed balconies of sort, I guess. So that was the beginning of it, but they are being planned or built, have been built in many countries around the world, in Australia, in uh, some Asian countries, and in the U.S. And so we call them vertical forests, or the main term, vertical forest. That, that was one of them. Um, of course, there's genetically modified trees, which could be something that uh, arborists and uh, urban foresters need to be thinking about. The, the example that I gave was bioluminescent trees that could substitute for streetlights at night, glow-in-the-dark trees. I mean, what could go wrong with that? Lots of things. But there are actually serious researchers developing glow-in-the-dark plants and, and trees at several places uh, around the world. Will it ever catch on? I don't know, but it's something to be aware of. It would save cities a huge amount of money on electricity for streetlights, and it would be putting less uh, CO2 into the atmosphere. I love it. You know, I, I can't even imagine. I have a hard time sleeping when there's lots of light, but... Well, this would be a gentle light, like a uh, night yeah, light. Yeah, a gentle light. Right. It, it, it certainly could confuse the birds and cause other uh, biological problems, though. It's something that would need to really be thought out carefully and tested in some places before doing it in, on a widespread basis. Another one of the signals of change that I put in that uh, article in the Arborist News was uh, self-driving cars and the impacts that they could have on urban areas and kind of 
opposite effects in, in remote areas outside of cities. In cities, they could open up all kinds of space for parks and trees to be planted, as we don't need significant amount of space is used up in surface parking lots in urban areas. And a lot of that would not be needed if self-driving cars became widespread. Well, let me ask you, David, you, you spoke to the Southern chapter of the International Society of Arboriculture. Mm -hmm. Any recollections on what the feedback was like? Because that's pretty cutting edge stuff. Well, I got some very positive feedback on that talk. And I also got some a little bit of pushback. After the talk, I sat with some arborists for lunch and we were talking about it a little bit. And several of them said, ah, I just can't buy that one thing, whatever it was yeah. I was talking about. And my point was, I wasn't trying to convince you that these things are gonna happen, but they're possibilities. They're real signals of possible change. They may may or may not be desirable. They, they, there may be all kinds of unintended consequences that could come with them, but there are possibilities. And so that's one of the things, uh, there's a, a futurist, Jonathan Peck at the Institute for Alternative Futures. He's retired now, but he was a senior futurist there. And I worked with Jonathan on a couple of projects. And one of the things he told me was that the hardest part of his job as a futurist was getting people to think in a broader way about the future because we're so stuck in the present. It actually has to do with the way the human brain has evolved that we, we tend to think that the future is going to be like the, the, the present and trends that are happening now, we sort of extend them into the future in our mind. And so that that's the big challenge is getting to pe people to think that the future could really be different. Yeah, and that's why I love having this conversation with you. You know, I, I grew up in the tree business. The grandparents had it put me to work when I was 16. And I could tell mm. from my grandfather's start in the business in uh, like 1917, he was a teenager as well. The tree care industry kind of grew along with the birth of the uh, industrial economy. In other words, you would send a tree crew out to the guy that started Bun Coffee Makers, which happens to be a client that my grandfather had down near Springfield, Illinois. My grandfather always used to say, I sold the biggest tree contract in the history of Illinois. Well, okay, that's great, but they were probably just you know pruning oaks on the estate for three weeks at a time. Fast forward now to 2021, and that's why I kind of keep scanning, as you say, the horizon for what this industry might be moving towards. Because I fully believe in Pennsylvania, and I know greater metro uh, Minneapolis has gone through it as well, where we lose a species to a pest, wholesale loss, you know, macro loss, and I fully believe that we're harvesting this urban forest. We're disassembling it. Our company just bought a 40-ton crane. It's our second crane mm. just to assist with big removals. Wow. We've taken them down, and the, the buzz line is, but we're not planting them back. So that, that when I scan the future, it's like this tree care industry has to start doing more with the planting end of things. Well, let me ask you something that is... It, are arborists prepared for, equipped for recommending to their clients how to plant for the future and for, to plant for decades ahead when the, the, as the climate changes and, and evolves? So I'm shaking my head here because I remember when I first took a boriculture course and I thought to myself, they're talking all about maintaining trees, but they're not talking about planting trees. This is like 30 years ago. I was thinking... How come they're not planting trees? If they are so dedicated to taking care of them, how come they're not planting them and planting them in the right way? Well, guess what? The planning is done by everybody else who doesn't right. know what they're doing, and not, not to generalize, but people don't know how they're planning. And you come back and the cage is left on and the and the and the burlap is left on and the mulch is slapped up planted against the too bark. Deep. And you plant it too deep, of oh, at least a foot too deep. And you say to yourself, how come the arborists haven't led this movement? How come they haven't? Because if they don't, they're not going to have anything to yeah, prove. It's vital. And as the climate changes, we have to be thinking decades ahead for what to plant. 
We have a forest ecologist at the University of Minnesota, Lee Freilich. Lee is quite an interesting guy, and he was interviewed for some research that he did on climate change in forests in Minnesota. And one of the points that he made, this was, he was interviewed by the Washington Post, and his research showed that in, on a business as usual trajectory for climate change, if we don't really act seriously to decarbonize, that by the year 2100, Northern Minnesota, you know, that's the fringe, the lower southern fringe of the boreal forest, could be like Kansas. And Lee's comment that got quoted in the Washington Post was, we already have a perfectly good Kansas. We don't need one in northern Minnesota. And so it's a very different possibility of a very different environment and different trees would be needed, would thrive in that environment. That's a really a good point. And I, I don't think that we, I don't think we teach our students to think for the future. I know that I would bring it up in my classes when I would teach woody plants, you know, don't think about the jobs that are here right. today. Think about the possibilities of what's going to be there tomorrow. So don't worry about getting a job now. You've got four years before you get out of university. Think about the potential for there to be a myriad of jobs that are something we've never seen before because you have to think outside the box. And it's very much like a person who's gathering trends for trends mag uh, articles. You know, we had Katie Dubow on from a garden media group who writes trends. Uh, her trends are picked up all around the world. And she is a go-to person for that kind of thing. When you see someone like her who's picking up the trends, those are the kind of people you want to follow if you're young and you, you know, don't even think in the future, you should always be thinking of a trend. Think of an article on trends because that'll put you in the direction of a future. Absolutely. And, you know, you're mentioning about teaching about the future. And, and when you think about it, something that just blows my mind is history is a required subject. We have all had history since elementary school. So many history classes. And it's great. It's wonderful to learn about history. But we don't have a single class in the future, thinking about the future, how to be a futurist, or principles for thinking about the future. And Peter Bishop was the head of the Future Studies program at Houston for a long time. He's retired now, but he has an organization called Teach the Future, which has developed really excellent curriculum from kindergarten through high school. And teachers are picking it up all over the world. He has quite a, it's quite an organization to get kids thinking about the future in really useful, productive ways at an early age and kind of reframing that. Well, and that would be like problem solving. Having a problem solving course is very much like thinking for the future. If you have this problem, A, how do we get to C using B? Uh, how do we get there? What, what are the tools that we need to get to that, the next point? What is that future point that we're going to get to? And we need to start thinking that way. Trees make me think that way when I had just said in an earlier podcast that they're taking down this tree in Fairmount Park on Belmont Plateau, and it's, it's an enormous tree. So many events have been held underneath it, a, a red maple, and they have to remove it because it's hazardous. And what are they going to put there? Well, the head of the forests for Philadelphia, she's made the selection of putting in black gum, three of them. And because they can tolerate the environment much better than the tree that was there, a tree that has a greater diversity in, in its environmental conditions, it can take, you know, from wet to dry. Will it work there? Yes, it will work there. And having someone thinking that in for the future is important because you have to think that way when you're planting a tree. And we don't teach that. Yeah, interesting. It's it, It's been a, a long-term problem. One of my friends is just now, you mentioned the big cranes, Hal. He's had, hired an arborist and they're going to come out with one of those gigantic cranes to take out three ash trees that my friend had actually planted many decades ago or, or brought in as, as saplings. And the ash are, are, are going. And uh, right. it was not a good idea decades ago to plant all ash in his yard, but he, he wasn't given good advice on that. 
Right. What the party line from the sales end of things is if you want to keep your ash trees green or white, you have to inject them because mm. the only standing healthy ash trees are the ones that are on chemo. You know, they're, they're getting the intravenous injection every other year. Now, there is some hope that, and, and maybe you've observed, I know when I'm in Chicago, I, I can see emerald ash borer has kind of moved through the region. There's a lot of coppice now coming up, which actually looks great, you know, from the interstate. And I think the theory is that EAB will kind of recede once that first wave of ash is gone. But we did have a guest from the Morton Arboretum and, and clearly there's standing dead ash and your, your friend, your neighbor had to hire a company with a crane because you can't climb an ash that died to emerald ash borer because the wood gets too brittle too fast. Too brittle, yeah, too brittle. It's a big hazard. It's funny that you're talking about ash and we, we have them dead standing in this development where I live. But the seedling had worked its way into one of my pots in my back patio. And it is now 10 feet tall. I'm ta I've been talking to it. And, and I said, well, there's no emerald ash borer left around here. So you could, you could be, you're welcome here. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't know what's gonna come. As, as Hal said, we don't know. We've seen some coppice. There might be a really good seed store that's going to hang out until the emerald ash borer moves forward. And that seed store is going to redevelop. But we have to be patient and we can't disturb the soil. Otherwise, we're not going to have it. Yeah, it's interesting. We've had a beautiful fall here. It was really late and then it kicked in. And uh, because it's uh, cool at night, the leaves have held on. And it's great. You know, I remember the Princeton nurseries and, and the big nurseries uh, throughout the uh, Midwest, Ohio, and the East Coast would often carry as many as a half a dozen uh, varieties of ash trees. So, yeah, we're ruminating on the past a little bit. I guess the message there is let's not give up on it, just like people didn't give up. And I know University of Minnesota was huge with their ELM research coming up with the, the resistant cultivars. Right. So what do you see coming down the line? What are some of the things that you see coming down the line? Well, I'm one of those people who believes that climate change is the big issue. Um, I heard a speaker a couple of years ago, Amitav Ghosh, who's a, a novelist from India. Yes, yes. You read some of his stuff? Yes, uh-huh. Amazing, and he was a speaker at a climate change conference I was at, and he said, uh, not only is climate change the biggest problem we face, but it may be the biggest problem that humanity has ever faced. And so looking a few decades forward, it's going to be a very big challenge to meet the Paris Climate Accord goals of staying within one and a half to two degrees uh, Celsius of additional warming. It's a huge challenge. It's a huge opportunity as well for foresters, for arborists, for people who work in urban forestry, the need is going to be so great. And that's why I love the title of your podcast. It's such a huge and important, audacious goal of planting a trillion trees. But the nature-based solutions to climate change, I think, are a really key part of it all. And so looking ahead, to me, that's the biggie. Because as the climate changes, it affects everything. It affects agriculture. It affects urban areas. You know, I mean, of course, heat waves are the most deadly climate impact so far and probably will continue. And the, the projections are that the number of people exposed to deadly heat from extreme heat events and heat waves, especially in urban areas, is going to increase significantly. And trees have a big role in mitigating that, in mitigating the urban heat island effect. And so somehow, I mean, there's a gigantic need to turn these concrete jungles into lush urban oases. And that is one of the really important tasks of the next couple of decades. I was crowded into a pre-Thanksgiving family get together with my brother-in-law and my nephew. My nephew has a background in forestry and they both agreed in kind of a loud opinionated way. <laughs> it's all gonna work out because as more and more people 
in the business community realize, hey, this is a real thing, then the money is going to come in in greater amounts than we haven't really seen. So yes, we have the segment of the population that is gearing up with the rocket ships to go somewhere else. And I'm sure you might have a comment on that, David. But at the same time, that could be the game changer, so to speak. And, and maybe this uh, Build Back Better is, is the start of it, where if the financing is there, and I hadn't really looked at it. I thought it was going to be all grassroots. I thought, we'll plant a trillion trees, but it's going to be volunteers. <laughs> but if big money comes in, hey, we might pull a rabbit out of our well, head. Well, I mean, and that's an important thing. And there's a disinvestment or divestment movement to get organizations of all types to disinvest in fossil fuels and to invest in green solutions and decarbonization solutions carbon capture technologies and things like that. And so there's there's movement in that direction, but it's not very fast yet. We could always reach some tipping point where things have been moving in a direction and then really take off because the tipping point is reached. And that's what I'm hoping for. There's attitudes towards climate change have been slowly changing in this country and around the world but there's still a ways to go. And so what we need is a tipping point in public attitudes and support of climate action. And when that happens, then there's more support from governments and all types of organizations to become involved and to take action. You know, I was thinking when you were saying that back in the 1950s, the oil industry hijacked public transportation because LA had some of the best public transportation in the world. And it disappeared because of the movement for fossil fuel and cars. We see it again in 1980. Well, we, we saw somebody trying to make things better in the 1980s with solar panels on the White House. And then we got hijacked again by the fossil fuel industry. This time, I don't think that the fossil fuel industry can win because it's not only going to take them down, but it's going to take everybody else down. And, you know, we need to get our heads out of the ground and start looking upward for our answers rather than internally and looking after coal and, you know, fuel that is going to create problems with CO2. I mean, we, ha we have to stop it. And there's a lot of wonderful things happening. And again, these are, I think, issues that can be posed to young children who have not been already coerced into uh, an area where their parents want them to go, getting them young so we can have them solve some problems. Give a small child a problem and they can solve it. You listen to some of the kids nowadays, they have answers. And creativity, creative solutions, imagination, they're a vital part of thinking about things differently, creating a new way of life, absolutely. A number of the future studies methods that, that we use in our research that I use are try to tap into that creativity to break people out of the same way of, of thinking about things. It, that's, that's really vitally important, I think. So I, I wrote a little piece on Medium. That there's a... Yeah, I was just going to oh. raise that. Great article. Yeah, so for our listeners on the website, is it just medium.com yeah and then there's uh, something called the futurian which is one of uh, many many right and so you wrote that piece called why i am a climate optimist which immediately caught my eye dave because i of course am a glass half empty guy <laughs> and uh it details what you call positive signals of change i feel like so much has changed since you wrote that article given that uh, cop 26 has come and gone in glasgow and stuff like that but you, you talk about worldwide reforestation, and actually the first time I've ever heard the term afforestation, oh. mm -hmm. pronounced that correctly, and the campaigns that are starting up around the world. We'd love to have you push that topic a little bit more in terms of the negativity bias that you discuss and give it to us from a futurist perspective. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's all kinds of cognitive biases that psychologists have identified that affect our thinking and limit our thinking about things. One of a couple of dozen of these biases is negativity bias. Everyone does this. We tend to focus on negative news that gets our attention because 
through all of human history, if there was something negative happening, we needed to pay attention to it. Maybe it was a large predator who was threatening us or what, whatever it was, pay attention to the negative. And so today it, it, that still affects us. And we, we give more weight to and more focus on, on those negative signals. Part of my job as a futurist in horizon scanning is to consciously make an effort to pay attention to the positive signals as well, because they're out there. They are every bit as plausible as the negative signals, I think. And so by making a conscious effort to scan for positive change or positive possibilities, that's one way that we can overcome that negativity bias. And so in, in my horizon scanning, I have a very big file. It's all posted on our database, but I also keep a file on my laptop of positive signals of climate change. Mm. And um, that's what I pulled out and just pulled a few examples out for that article on medium. So one is uh, clean renewable energy capacity is growing so rapidly today. It's from a low start, but it's growing rapidly. And it's just kind of astounding to see that the cost of renewable energy has come down dramatically and it's past an economic tipping point where it's cheaper to invest in wind and solar and to build a new coal plant or natural gas plant. Coal is dying rapidly, but th there's still a lot of inertia there. There's, and it's the dirtiest fuels in terms of carbon. The divestment movement away from fossil fuels is, is growing. And the Vatican has urged Catholics and, and to divest from fossil fuels. Uh, many universities, including the University of Minnesota now, uh, are div divesting from fossil fuels in their investment portfolio. The carbon capture technologies are really in their infancy, other than the nature-based ones like planting trees, but the technological carbon capture and storage technologies are starting out. And the, the US uh, Department of Energy just came out with, uh, you, you're familiar with the term moonshot. This is an earth shot for carbon capture technology that is basically designed to encourage innovation in the private sector and also in the public sector related to carbon capture, which is a, an important piece of decarbonizing. We can't get there without pulling some of the carbon that we've already put in. Electrification is, is important for decarbonizing. The, the innovations in battery technology are amazing. There's so many of them, including one I just saw the other day, and I posted this in our database, but uh, using wood-based nanomaterials in batteries that makes them more efficient and cheaper and really fascinating. I had never heard of that, but the uses of wood-based nanomaterials, there are just thousands and thousands of uses of it. And this, is, this was a new one for me. I mentioned before, attitudes are changing about climate change. A positive signal that I'm really encouraged about is the youth climate movement. You know, we're all familiar with Greta Thunberg, and, uh, but there are so many others like Greta, Vanessa Nakate from Uganda. It's just so inspiring. She just came out with a book in September or October, and so many young people are, are being inspired by people like Vanessa Nakate and Greta Thunberg and, and the others. So those are just, those are a few of the signals of climate change that uh, it's important to be paying attention to those as well as the other side of the coin, because that IPCC report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report that came out in, was it early August or early September? I forgot. Yeah, sometime mid-summer, I think. Working yeah. Group uh, 1 report. There's going to be two more working groups reporting and then a big synthesis report. But that was a sobering, sobering assessment of the state-of-the-art science related to the climate. I have a quick question for you on that, for our listeners and myself. So I started to look for that report and it was daunting. Is there a place that you can go to get a good summation? Because the report itself, I remember, was several hundred pages. Very long. I would love to, yeah. It's very long. Very long. There's, you know, there's an, I don't think they call it an executive summary, but it's a summary for policymakers or something like that. Even, okay. Even that's a bit long. I don't know, 30 pages or something, but th that's digestible. I can do 30. Yeah. 
I want to yeah, bring okay. up two points that you know, cause I want to add two things to your list. Um, yeah. one is the research being done in Iceland with basalt. Have you heard about that where they're using, uh, basalt as CO2 capture using water and it, it drills it into the, the rock and the rock holds it. And uh, because the earth's surface has more basalt than anything else, the idea of being able to inject CO2 into basalt is extremely, very, very good. In other words, it looks great yeah. and they're having wonderful results with it. That's one. The other thing that happened in the news today was the floating islands in the Pacific, the plastic islands. They've discovered something very unusual about them, and it was something they never were expecting. And here you're talking about futuristic. They weren't expecting that there are over three to 400 different species utilizing these floating flotillas, if you will, to actually reproduce and use these islands as home. And what they're thinking is that if there's an invasive species that is adaptable, that it could stay on this floating flotilla of plastic, it could actually be spread around the world that way. But, mm. you know, there's the positive side that there are mussels and barnacles and all kinds of things that they never expected to stick to those slippery surfaces. And they're doing quite well and lots of green material growing on it as well. The other thing that I think a lot of people who are going for therapy and for helpful for depression is to write a gratitude list to get yourself out of the negative hole, if you will. And that gratitude list can be as small as I was able to get out of bed today, or I, I saw something that I never saw today before. You know, I never saw it in my life. Uh, could have been a bird, could have been something like that. But the idea of having a gratitude list and moving people out of that negative space that you were talking about is very helpful because you can see uh, a person's a shift in their mindset by just having them do that for a week or two weeks or three weeks. And all of a sudden they start to shift their thought process. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that can be just transformative for individuals. This fall semester, I've been teaching an environmental futures class. It's an undergraduate honors seminar at the University of Minnesota. And one of the exercises we had our students do, which they really got into, quite a bit was to write a letter to a grandchild. So they're writing the letter as if they're the 30, 40, 50 year, I guess for these students, it would be 50 years in the future. They're about 20 years old. Looking back at their career as they imagine it and what they'd like to tell their grandchildren in 50 years about the impact that they've had, the things that they've done in their lives and their careers, it was really emotional reading those letters that the students had written. Amazing. And so that's, it's a bit like that gratitude uh, list. It, it is like that gratitude. I used to teach a writing class for my students before they did their research projects at the university. And one of the things that I would have them do is write their obituaries. Oh, wow. And um, having them write their obituaries, they were like, what? <laughs> and they started to get into it very much like this. And when they started to read them out loud, as you mentioned, they would get emotional about it, but they saw themselves doing things that they never expected to see themselves doing by making their obituary. Oh, I never thought I really wanted to get married and have kids. Oh, I never really thought I wanted to have a farm and, and raise pigs or whatever it was. It was something that they had never thought of, but it came out on the paper. That's another thing that holds a lot of people back is constant judging, which goes into that negative categories you were talking about, constantly judging themselves. And is this okay for me to say, or is this okay for me to do, or could I say it? Or no, I can't. That kind of constant arguing within your head where, you know, the automatic writing just allows you to let it come out and see what can happen with your own creativity. Yeah, it's a powerful exercise. I like that idea of an, an writing your own obituary and talking about the life that you would like to have in the obituary that you would ideally like to have. It's sort of like that's a kind of visioning or preferred futuring, we call it. That's one of the techniques in, in futures is preferred futuring or, or visioning. And it's so critically important 
One of the things in class that I do is when we're talking about vision and preferred futures is I put up a slide of Martin Luther King on the day on the, the Washington Mall where he gave his I Have a Dream speech. And I say to them, you all remember hearing about Dr. Martin Luther King's famous I Have a Plan speech. And they, they do a double take. And he didn't have a plan. He had a vision. He had a a beautiful vision mm. of a of a better future that inspired people where a plan does not generally inspire people but a vision does and it's been found out in a lot of research both in futures and in psychology the, the real importance from the individual level all the way up to the entire society how important having a positive vision of the future is wow it's, that's, it's, it's amazing. amazing that's great stuff the idea of a futurist, that word, when you think about it, when we were younger, when we heard that word, we would say, oh, the Jetsons, you know, <laughs> the, the, the cartoon where they were, you know, living up in their, their house in the sky and they were driving a flying automobile. And, but that happened even, that's why the world's fairs were so important because the world's fairs brought to people a vision that they couldn't even imagine for themselves. I remember going to the World's Fair in New York City and, you know, things that you never thought could happen, happened and have already passed. Well, I've read about the one in New York. This is back in the late 60s. 19, I think it's 1969 or 1968. And I remember just the globe, you know, the globe of, of the earth, um, in this park. And as you come in, you see this big globe and you're like, oh, that's the earth, you know, that's us. And where are we going to go? And the things that we saw there were just incredible. It gets people thinking about possibilities in a broader range of things. And that's really what futures does is we're not trying to predict the future because nobody can do that. There, there are too many fundamental uncertainties in complex systems that they can't be predicted. And so a much more fruitful approach is to explore a range of possible, plausible, and preferable futures. And that's that's what we try to do in, in future studies is to, we have a bunch of techniques, you know, from horizon scanning and the futures wheel and scenario planning and visioning to, to do that, to explore those, the three Ps of futures, possible, plausible, and preferable. Sometimes people throw in a fourth P, possible, plausible, preferable, and preposterous for those things that are really far out. Like maybe a couple of years ago, a worldwide pandemic would have seemed preposterous to a lot of people, not to the epidemiologists and virologists who study that type of thing, but to a lot of people it would. And so it's, it's really important to not just consider the trends and the driving forces today and the emerging issues, but also to really think outside the box about low probability, high impact events that unfold quickly, like the pandemic. You know, you're talking about the pandemic. I remember being in a educational strategy group for our vocational schools, and we were talking about a strategic plan. And they always say, don't talk about money at all in a strategic plan and uh, all these different educators who were district super supervisors of districts, school districts, and there were seven of them. And this one guy kept bringing up money and I said, money's not gonna do you any good when you're sick and dying from some type of disease. You know, what if a disease comes through and kills a whole bunch of people off? What good is your money? Or if you don't have a cure, what's, what good is your money? Money was created, some other type or form of trade could be created, like salt was used or a wampum was used, you know, it could change. It, it's the thought process behind it. You, you have to think outside the box. Yeah. And a lot of people, because we're so focused on the present, they don't appreciate the fact we are in an age of accelerations. There are so many social, technological, economic, political factors that, that are accelerating rapidly and changing and all interacting, the, the potential for some really uh, dramatic change and the need for thinking thinking more deeply and creatively about the future is, is really prominent there. If you'll indulge me, I'd like to read that first paragraph 
of your article, David, because I remember now how it really, really caught me. So this is uh, from your article, Scanning the Horizon for the Future of Arboriculture, and it's in the Arborist News. And you say that the great acceleration is upon us, an era of rapid and transformative change. According to some observers, we have reached a historic inflection point in which multiple megatrends, such as technological disruption, economic globalization, and climate change are accelerating and interacting at the same time. Rapid social, technological, environmental, economic, and political change is the broad context, in this case, for arboriculture in the 21st century. The recent past and business-as-usual thinking may not be good guides for navigating this turbulent future. Right on. Well, this has been so thought-provoking. And what, what date was this written, David? 2019, yeah. 2019. When you read articles, and I'm always scanning articles and looking at different things, I think it's really important that we take a look at people like yourself that have a vision or have a, a feeling that there's going to be a shift. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, when I first started to get back into futures about 12 years ago, I had this idea to shift my research from the, the social science work I was doing into future studies because I felt like there was a contribution that could be made to natural resources and, and forestry with the perspectives and tools of, of futures. And I started going to the World Future Society meetings and you hear the speakers there and including in the small sessions, the big keynote speakers and the small ones. And the thing that just was so exciting about it is that there's nowhere else where you could find a group of people who are so open to a wide range of possibilities and thinking about those. And some of them are maybe really far out, but it's worth thinking about all that full range of possibilities. Those are the things that are often turning points in history. Like the pandemic is in certain ways, it's a, it's a turning point in affecting many, many areas. And so uh, that was really a, a big eye opener for me going to those World Future Society meetings and starting to get to know some professional futurists. Well, it kind of reminds me of a tree itself, bringing this back to uh, the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. You know, nobody could ever predict what could come from a tree after it passed on to another life cycle. And whether it becomes a floor or a table or a chair or a bench or an altar for a church, these are all things that come from a tree that came from a seed. And that seed had no idea what it was going to turn into. Right. And today the possibilities are even greater. I was just reading an article yesterday about 3D printing with wood-based cellulose. Yes. And there were some photos of these beautiful electric guitars that had been 3D printed from sawdust. And, you know, it's amazing. And then there's all the materials that can be created, all the products that can be created with wood-based nanomaterials. When you break something down to that nanoscale, a billionth of a meter, the properties of the materials are completely different. And so you can build car panels and you can build products that could replace steel and plastic and a high environmental impact materials with a renewable material of wood, if we could scale up and bring the cost of production down for wood-based nano. The Forest Service has had a, a pilot plant operating in Madison at the Forest Products Lab, a, a wood nano pilot plant for six, seven, eight years. I'm not sure when it first started but there's several others around the world and lots of research going on that but it's uh it has the potential to to usher in a a, a new age of wood this was really wonderful having you on our podcast today it just really expands the horizons and makes you think deeper and i think it's great and we we have we still have to ask you our favorite question what is your favorite tree or group of trees i have a lot of favorites i have Loved trees since I was a kid, and I helped my dad plant trees on our property and watching them grow. But I have this particular fondness for the burr oak. That's a good one. It's yes. so gnarled and uh, just such a, 
you can't run it through a sawmill, I would think, very easily. <laughs> but such a beautiful tree and also with that thick bark, it's a survivor, survived the prairie fires and uh, very resilient tree, which is a key thing that we need, or all of us need personally and all of humanity. We need resilience for the next few decades here. Well, and that's a perfect way to end our show, don't you think, Hal? Absolutely. Uh, resilience is a common theme these days. And uh, this uh, time with you, Dave, has checked a lot of boxes. I really appreciate your time and I yeah, hope we can have you on. Yeah, it was wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. Really enjoyed it. Do you want to direct our listeners to any particular uh, USDA forest website or anything else? Uh, they'll find your article on medium.com. Um, but uh, where else may, well, may they want to look? That's uh, a good point. The, the research group that I'm in is called the Strategic Foresight Group. And so if you were to Google US Forest Service, Northern Research Station, Strategic Foresight Group, those types of words, you'd, you'd find us, maybe with my last name thrown in there, Bankston. Uh, well, we have all of our publications on there, so that's a place to start to, to look for things. Also, just keep exploring um, all of the, so many resources on the web for futures and futures studies and futures thinking. Mm -hmm. Thanks again. Excellent. Thank you. David, Bye. you've been great. Take care. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank <laughs> you.